Hey everyone, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're joining me from. I am so happy that you are joining me here in this Ruby Live Office Hours event and that you are part of the Ruby family. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Barton Seaver. I'm a chef. I'm an author, proud husband, father. I live on the ragged, jagged, delicious coast of Maine, where I am joining you from today in my home studio kitchen, looking out at a snowy landscape and uh, cold, frigid days. You know, a lot of people around the country are looking forward to spring, but we've still got about nine weeks of March left, and then and then about seven weeks of April before we get to spring. But um, yeah, the forsythia is about to bloom, and like life is looking up. So I know there's a lot of bad and terrible things going on in the world today, but you know what? Feeding people is an act of love. It is an act of kindness, and it is something that you are interested in doing because you are here. So I just wanted to thank you. Uh, for all that you do to make our world, even our little microcosms of it, uh, better through feeding people delicious, healthy food. So any of you who have joined me here before know that I like to talk about gratitude as sort of an opener to this because food is love. Cooking is an act of love. I think the first ingredient in any recipe should be gratitude for those who we are able to feed, for the food that we are able to feed them with. But um, I like to also take just like one thing that I'm grateful for today. And you know what? I am. I, I went out for a long run this morning. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and then I went and bought some running gloves. So uh, I am happy for warmth returning to my fingers and for gloves that will prevent that next time. So simple things in life to be grateful for. There you go. Hey, we've got uh, a bunch of questions over there on the right-hand side already. The way that this program's going to work is, well, I take your questions. And if I've got a good answer for it or even a mediocre answer, I'll give it to you. If I don't have an answer, I will send it along to those in the Ruby team who are best able to answer it for you. I'm looking forward to this. So open office hours. Let's roll. From Grace. Hey there. Hi, Grace. Nice to have you on. How, how to cook black beans. I've tried soaking overnight, adding kombu, but they stay hard. I bought black beans from four different grocery stores. So thank you. So Grace, that was actually the first thing I was going to say is that as black beans age and get older, they get drier. And uh, well, at some point they just aren't really going to absorb that liquid, whatever you cook them in and never really get soft again. So uh, buying different beans from different stores, looking for them to be fresh. You want the skins to be relatively intact. You want the beans to be intact, not broken into pieces and the black coating shattered. So just look for that. Uh, but also look by, you know, sell by dates. You want to make sure that you're a couple of years out on that. But <clears throat> other reasons why beans can end up being a little bit hard is if you season the cooking liquid ahead of time with salt, that can delay the process of softening, though I have read in New York Times, uh, Melissa Clark, I believe, had a really great uh, article in sort of Beans 101, which I would recommend you look up. Other reasons why they stay hard, black beans, uh, well, is just you haven't cooked them long enough. There wasn't enough water in there. Uh, I understand, Grace, that you did soak them overnight, which is a, a precursor to getting them right. So anyway, I think there's a lot of different variations there in what could have been the issue, but uh, here's what I do. I buy black beans that look intact, that look, you know, fresh, the vibrant in their black color. I soak them overnight in uh, non-salted water, and then I add them to a pot, add whatever liquid I'm going to use to cook them, and then I bring them to a boil. I skim off any uh, 
foam that comes to the top. I throw that away and then I cover the pot, reduce the heat down to about low, medium low, and I just let it simmer. And once the beans are fully cooked to the texture that I want, that is when I would then season the pot. And the way to best season beans is season the liquid until it tastes good to you and then let it sit for another 20 minutes, half hour at least, for the salt to absorb into the beans. So there you go, Grace. I hope that that all worked out for you. From Carla, a general question. Is there a course chefs take to know the science of cooking, like for a one pound cake, how much flour to liquid to fat ratio, or what to substitute for what if you don't have an ingredient, or is that just experience or Google? Huh. Yeah, Carla, great question. Um, Certainly Google is, is a wonderful resource. There's a lot of uh, true wisdom and uh, you know, experience that's available to us that's shared on the internet. There's also a lot of bad information that's out there. Generally sites like Forks Over Knives, generally sites like the New York Times, Food 52, I find to be spot on almost all of the time. So you know, find your sources for that. Um, let's see, there, there's... J. Kenzie Lopez-Alt, uh, I believe, has uh, a food science blog. I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but that's a really great um, sort of warehouse of, of all sorts of scientific information around that. And for the cake question in particular, I think because cakes can be so many different styles that uh, you might find that information you might have to read around a little bit to really get the sort of the deeper fluency that you're looking for there. And then another book that I would recommend is, uh, or a book that I would recommend, and I believe there's a website associated with it too, is On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. <clears throat> this is sort of the quintessential food science for the cook textbook uh, that I learned from when I was coming up and, and read that in culinary school and have kept that as a resource by my side uh, since. So there you go. And always you can just toss these questions into these live events or send them to the admin desk at Ruby and we will get them over to the right person to help you with any sort of specific question around a specific recipe that you ever have. So cheers. Appreciate you, Carla. From Suzanne. Hey there, thanks for taking the time for these sessions. Of course, they make my they make my week. It's one of my favorite things to do. What is a tip for the easiest way to cut up a fresh pineapple with as little waste as possible? All right, so I was looking at that question a little bit earlier and I was thinking about it. And bottom line is there's a lot of waste around pineapples. Uh, I just, I have never really found a, a way to minimize it. The skin is quite thick, as you know, and it's mottled and indented. So taking off just that sort of first outer layer doesn't work because it leaves a lot of the skin and sort of those sub layers. So you end up uh, taking off quite a bit of the flesh of the uh, pineapple itself. But here's what I do with a pineapple is put it on your board, lay it down crosswise, cut off a bit on the bottom just to give yourself a flat resting spot to work from. You don't want the pineapple rolling around that's just unsafe. So give yourself a stable bottom to which to rest it on, cut off the top, and then working vertically, just using a large knife is what I tend to, a larger knife rather than a paring knife, um, is to really slice down and around the pineapple, uh, taking off as as much, only as much as you think you need to. Uh, and then what I do is then I go back with a paring knife and instead of trying to get all the way down to the point where I've taken off all of those little eyes 
from the pineapple, and you know this, you take off the skin and then you've got those little black kind of starlets, right, that, that are all over the place. Instead of trying to cut that off vertically, I'll then go in with a paring knife and just scoop it out. Another tool you can use, uh, let's see, if you've got a, uh, a peeler with like a bean peeler in it, or like a pea peeler, I don't actually know what this thing is for other than making like, anyway, it works perfectly, that little disc there to scoop out those little eyelets uh, in the pineapple. And in that way, you're going to end up with a pineapple that has all these little craters in it, right? But you get more of the pineapple and it's that outside layer that I've always found is sweetest and best. So you want to retain as much of that as possible. I've never found any use, uh, nor have I really investigated a use for the the tra the waste from the pineapple, but I compost everything here around the house. So uh, that's sort of my use. So there you go. And you know what? I have found that the, uh, the interior, the core, uh, once you have it peeled down, then I cut much like you would an apple. You cut on one side and then go around and you just four sections that leave sort of a squared off core in the middle. And that, if you slice it very, very thin, like on a mandolin or something, can work. Uh, can can be edible. You can actually break down those fibers enough. Uh, but of course, it can be juiced, uh, etc. used to flavor syrups. If you're making a, a simple syrup, whatever it is, infused into alcohol or teas, whatever it is, there's lots of ways to get flavor out of it, if not eat it outright. There you go. Hey, thanks for your question. I appreciate you, Susan. Hi, Judith. Nice to see you, friend. Thanks for coming back. After the garlic class, you ordered a bag of music to plant in the garden in the spring. Now that you're getting close, when's the best time to plant them? And have I ever grown garlic in pots successfully? Well, dude, I, I appreciate your optimism, knowing that you're, uh, you're up there in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> the optimism that spring is coming soon. I like that. Um, our ground is still way frozen. So... Uh, so spring planted garlic is is great. I would get it into the ground as soon as the soil can be worked. Uh, so as soon as the thaw happens, uh, or if you haven't thawed out, you know, raised beds are better for this. And there's ways to kind of scoot up the date there. You can put black plastic tarp or just a, like a regular tarp over top to help warm up that soil. One thing you do want to be careful about with spring planting garlic is that if the soil moisture is too high, that the garlic cloves can end up rotting before they end up really sprouting and, and bulbing. So uh, like here up in Maine, <clears throat> where you've got significant snow cover, et cetera, even though I can begin to work the soil, I have to give it uh, another week or so uh, and even sort of aerate it just a little bit. I don't till, but I aerate just a little bit to help get some of that moisture out. Because if you're just putting a garlic bulb into sodden, cold ground, um, yeah, the mold is going to beat your garlic. So the other thing about planting, planting spring garlic is, uh, well, at planting garlic at all, is I just happen to have some in front of me, you want to leave as much of this white paper on as possible. Treat the cloves with as much care as you can. Uh, any little bruise in this, even just like a fingernail that punctured it inadvertently while you're trying to pick it off, um, just can lead to bacterial invasion there is just gives an opportunity so you want to plant with the little sprout side up and this is beginning to sprout you can see that little piece of green right there at the top sprout side up i plant them uh staggered about three inches so i'll plant one here and then six inches over but six yeah six inches uh, wide in the row but only three inches over so i plant them in a diagonal pattern like this 
And I found that for my, for my yard, I get, that's the way I get the best wind and air movement through. Uh, that's also the way that I get the most sunlight penetration, um, but also the intense planting. So I can basically get more garlic out of more space, but keep the plants healthy. It's a good thing to think about, but also to keep your uh, garlic mulched heavily until uh, it's, it's very well sprouted. Garlic uh, can, weeds can outcompete garlic pretty easily. And especially in the springtime, if you're planting it, it's, it's going to take a little while for that bulb to, to really get going and to secure itself in its place. So keep it mulched, keep it weeded well, just to avoid any of that competition there. And then, uh, yeah, enjoy the scapes too, as they come. They'll probably come around uh, late June, late mid-July or so. You'll get some wonderful scapes. Enjoy those. Have I ever grown it in pots successfully? No, I've never tried. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't work so long as you keep it mo the moisture in the right level and uh, have the right soil so your acidity isn't too high. Uh, those are the only things I would, I would recommend. Cheers, Judith. Nice to see you pop up. Thanks, friend. From Victoria, I know we've talked about sharpening knives a lot, but when I try to look at diamond stones, there are several types, medium fine, extra fine, etc. Do you need all of them or will one suffice and which one? Thank you. So, Victoria, uh, great question. Uh, when, so for me, when I sharpen knives, I have a range of grits. Uh, and you can have a diamond stone, a wet stone, a coarse stone, et cetera. There's a number of different, you know, methodologies for this, whether it's the Japanese, wet stones, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> I have typically about three grits that I work with. The, the big grit, the extra sort of the, the most, uh, pour, uh, let's say the most grating of them, think about sandpaper. Uh, I use when a knife is just gotten really dull, it got really banged up, it, that it really needs some repair work done. That's when I use the, the large grit ones. Uh, but mostly just for everyday maintenance. Everyday maintenance, you just want a, a very fine grain, as fine as you can, just a couple of passes. And this is just to burnish the knife and to keep it in good condition. But I use a medium grit, uh, diamond stone, sandstone, whetstone, uh, you know, about once a month or so. Every other month, I'll go back through and give all my knives just a couple of passes on that and then get back to the, uh, the fine. So the fine stone also is kind of it kind of replicates what, what a good steel will do for you anyway. It's really that fine honing at the end rather than really grating away any of the metal and truly you know, altering the blade, if that makes sense. So uh, for you, I, you know, diamond stones can get more expensive, but a, a tri-stone, I don't think I... I can't remember all the stuff I have, which is a problem and a blessing, but... Uh, yeah, so I've got a, a, a whetstone here. So I've got, and this I, I recommend fully, coarse, medium, fine. And it sits in a little wooden trough that, that holds it in place. And you can use water or you can use uh, you know, honing oil or something on it. That's what I recommend. This was probably $40 or so and is basically all you would need. And you can sure buy the diamond versions, uh, but not, but there you go. Hey, thanks for the question. I wish you well. From Lisa, do you have any tips on using stainless steel pans for sauteing without oil? I'm moving away from non-stick pans and finding it a challenge. Thank you. Uh, so I have always found stainless steel pans a challenge for cooking with or without oil, quite honestly. Um, 
I, yeah, I don't really, really love them. Uh, I have a couple of nonstick, but uh, the one that I, I use, I actually just got a brand new pan that I am seasoning in the oven. And this is a black steel pan or carbon steel, uh, cast steel, all, all known by different versions. But uh, this is a Misen pan, M-I-S-E-N, that I recently got. It was $60. That's um, yeah. It's not a small amount of money, but also this pan uh, will last for decades and decades. And uh, if you believe the advertisements that the company says, I could put an egg in here and just blow on it and it like wiggles like a flounder or something, fish, like it's that nonstick. So cast iron, cast steel are both the traditional seasoned nonstick. Um, I like those. That's really what I use. Uh, and in terms of stainless steel without oil, uh, just monitoring your heat, making sure that the heat is high enough in the pan before you add your ingredients in so that you're creating as much of that separation as possible, but also sort of rapidly engaging the cooking process, the Maillard reaction, which is the caramelization, the coloring of foods that leads to sweetness and depth of flavor. So, uh, yeah. So I'd say, and also, uh, it really doesn't necessarily need a whole lot of oil, even just patting you know just a little bit of oil on a uh, a paper towel and just glistening the surface not really adding any appreciable amount of oil would certainly help but i also completely understand if if you were trying to move away from oil entirely so there you go lisa i wish you well thanks for your question how do i keep okra from being slimy from aura hey great question and something uh, I have to deal with around this house a lot because both my 20-month-old and my five-year-old boys love them some okra. And I was actually just contemplating okra this morning. I was putting them to their, into their lunch as I was packing them up for school and just thinking like okra is one of the most dynamic, interesting, and just like charismatic vegetables there is. Like it's got so many different textures. It's beautiful to look at. There's, I mean, the shapes are just gorgeous. They come in all sorts of colors and sizes. They go well in so many different dishes. You can prepare them just about any any method there is. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of like loving up on some okra, like loving some okra this morning, man. Um, I'm really appreciating it as a, as a culinary ingredient. So the sliminess in okra comes from when it mixes with water. Uh, okra, when sauteed dry, when grilled, when roasted, uh, doesn't get slimy. It's only when you add water to it or add it to a water-based dish, such as gumbo or some, you know, something like that, that it, the sliminess in it reacts with the water and it begins to, to soak up that water and create the slime. So gumbo filet, uh, you know, sort of acts the same as okra in that way. Um, and I'm not, I'm not up on my Southern cuisine ingredients as much as I once was, but, um, sort of sometimes that, that thickening process of okra is exactly what you want to help add body and texture and lusciousness, lusciousness to a dish without having to add fat or cream or butter, et cetera. Um, and in that way it's, it's quite, you know, appropriate to develop that sliminess to it. Uh, but really just try using dry heat cooking methods and, uh, there you go. And the other thing I do also is I salt the okra late in the process. So if I'm sauteing it, I will get a cast iron pan 
blazing hot, I'll add in a little bit of butter or olive oil, some garlic. As soon as the garlic begins to color, I'll throw in the okra, toss it all, and I'll let it sit over high heat until it begins to color the okra itself. I'll flip it once or twice, give it another minute, and then I will season it with salt. Salt as a humectant draws moisture to it. So as soon as you salt that, it will draw moisture out of the okra and thus create the conditions by which the slime can create itself. So there you go. A couple of tips for you. I wish you well. Great question. Fun. From Barbara. Hi there. Nutritional yeast sounds ghastly. <laughs> But I know that it's commonly used in vegan and vegetarian cooking. What can you tell me about it? Do I personally use it? Uh, yeah, it does sort of sound ghastly. Um, but you know what? I don't have much uh, uh, experience with it. It's not an ingredient that I've used a whole lot. I, I have some. I've used it in some spice blends before. Nutritional yeast uh, certainly adds sort of that. I mean, it has somewhat like a cheddar-like flavor to it. Uh, that can be used a, either as a sort of a forward flavor in things. If you're making something like a risotto, something like that, it kind of takes the place of like a Parmesan really well in that it adds that sort of sharp tang uh, of like an aged cheese, but all, like the lactic acid in a cheese. But also it adds this deep, deep umami richness to things that accentuates and provides platform for so many other flavors to really become their better selves. Uh, so nutritional yeast is, and it's nutritional, so it's, uh, you know, it's got a good nutrition profile. So, uh, yeah, it might sound not great, but it, it's an ingredient that, uh, that has won fans over, uh, in, in all types of cuisine. So I think it's quite useful. Um, but yeah, I don't really use it myself, as I said, but, um, it, it adds a lot. Think of it like, uh, like Parmesan, like cheese, uh, it kind of takes the place of butter in some uh, preparations as well in terms of the flavor and texture profile that it provides and also sort of takes the place of soy sauce in other ways with adding seasoning and also that umami. So there you go. Wish you well. Thanks, Barbara. From Estella. Hi, friend. How are you? Nice to see you. In Brazil, we season the bean after it's cooked. Uh, Let's see. In, in Brazil, we're seasoning the beans after cooked, like sautéed onions and garlic. Do you think that changes the final taste? Uh, no, I think uh, oftentimes you know it, it might not be as integrated. But I love the you know I love the seasoning of uh, you know, charred, singed, slightly caramelized onions, you know, uh, garlic as well to to add those flavors into beans. Now, commonly those are cooked into the beans from the get-go. So their flavor really sort of absorbs into the, li into the liquid and then into the beans themselves. But uh, in the method that you're describing, I, I like that very much because it keeps the flavors of the beans and the sweetness, uh, I'm sorry, the flavor of the onion and the garlic and the sweetness and the aromas of them a little fresher and provides a bit of a counterpoint, if you will. Um, to the beans. So I wouldn't say it really changes the flavors so much as it, uh, it it's just a different manifestation of it. Uh, just slightly fresher flavors, less integrated and a little bit more sort of component. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do is I cook a big pot of black beans and then I'll make salads with them throughout the week. And one of the salads I do is you know, chopped red onion, etc. cetera, uh, chopped celery. So adding both texture, but also that sweetness back in. So yeah, it's a great way to go about it. Cheers. Thanks, Estella. From Gina. Hi, how are you? Uh, what are your thoughts on air fryers? Um, 
You know, I've never really used an air fryer much, uh, but what I've found them to be is basically a convection oven. Right? Uh, I mean, that's kind of what they are. They're an oven that blows around air and therefore uh, and maintains a high temperature and therefore it allows all sides of something to crisp evenly at once um, as it would in frying when you are completely submerged in the fat. Thus, the entirety of the outside is cooking equally at once. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I understand air frying to be really is just convection cooking. Um, you know, I like roasted potatoes more so than French fries. Uh, if I'm going to make French fries, I'm going to deep fry them. I just, if I'm going to splurge on that and go through the trouble of making it, I want to make them really well. And I'm, I'm going to make them that way. Uh, I think roasted potatoes are, are the best thing to come out of the oven. So, uh, but a lot of the things, you know, we, we eat a lot of fish sticks around this house. Like, you know, I, I, there's no shame in that. We eat a lot of fish sticks and I put them, I've got a steam oven back here or an oven with a, a steam function that also has convection. This is the Innova oven. Uh, and I use that to cook the, the fish sticks and they end up completely crisped and crunched all the way around uh, in a completely dry environment, no you know, aerated oil or any steam in there. So um, basically that was a long way of coming around to saying, I don't think air fryers really provide much that ovens and just good technique don't already provide. So there you go. Thanks, Gina. From Aaron, I'm an absolute beginner, so this is a very basic question. Welcome. We're thrilled to have you. You're on the right path. How do you tell if your knives need to be sharpened? Huh, interesting. Well, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to say uh, when you cut your finger off, um, although that is the sort of end result of a dull knife. Uh, I can't give you like a technical answer here, but I'm going to put it in more theoretical. A knife is dull when it's no longer a pleasure to use. How's that? Hmm? Subjective? Yes, of course. But I would say that a good sharp knife, and you've probably experienced this because you might have recently bought a new knife and took it out of the package and cut something and you were like, oh, damn, look at that. Yes, that was fun. Like, wow, sharp knives are really helpful and useful. When you find yourself cutting something and not saying that, like, I, I mean, I've been cooking for many decades and still when I pick up a sharp knife, the first cut I make, it is a marvel to me. Like I am, I am, it just pleases me to no end, right? So that's one way to think about it. The other way is if you have to put any pressure on it, you know, a good knife should slice, just slice right across. You don't, shouldn't have to put a whole lot of pressure on it. So take a tomato, something like that. Um, uh, even a piece of paper, there's some, there's some common, and this knife is not very sharp. There's some common, you know, tests like that. If you can run a knife across a piece of paper and cut right through it, knife is pretty sharp. So this knife is actually not bad. But if you just kind of bunch up the paper like that, yeah, it's not a sharp knife. So that's one test. Um, and the importance of this is, as I mentioned, like the end result of a dull knife is hurting yourself. Sharp knives require very little effort on the part of the person cutting, right? It's the tool that does the job. If you're rocking and slicing, if you're slicing down, if you're slicing around, whatever it is, you don't have to do the work because the knife is just doing it for you, right? As soon as you have to start 
you know, sawing at something to get into it, as soon as you have to start putting pressure on it, what are you doing? You're creating a huge variable by creating an entirely new input of, of exertion, of effort. And so if I'm trying to do this, like, yeah, chances are that I'm going to slip a lot more likely, right? If I'm just doing this and the knife is doing the work, there you go. So as soon as you put, find yourself putting more effort in than you think you should, that's time to just stop. Pick up your seal. Hone it a couple times. Did it work? <laughs> no, no, I can't get the other side to cut. Anyway, did it work? Is it a little bit sharper? You know, if your steel doesn't get you there, then it's time to go back to the to the stone, to the diamond stone, whatever it is, the whetstone, and and uh, recalibrate your knife. There you go. Thanks. I wish you well. From an aura, another one. What's the best way to steam veggies without overcooking them? Uh, so just look up the time. Uh, I, I don't know a single source where I can say broccoli takes exactly this amount of time to steam. Um, but a couple of variables here. When you're steaming, use the same pot so that you know you begin to get familiar with the environment that you're creating. Right? If you're using a different pot and different steaming methods and inserts all the time, uh, well, then you're not going to learn any consistencies. Right? So use the same pot if you can. Just get comfortable with that. Get fluent in that. Uh, also, another tip is to make sure that your pieces are of similar size, right? If you've got one broccoli floret that's this big and one that's this big, overcooked, undercooked, right? So give yourself a reasonable, give yourself an achievable target. Cut them all in the same size pieces, roughly. Um, the other thing that I found, like I was just steaming some broccoli the other day, and I had had it out on the counter for an hour or so before cooking it, basically meaning it was room temperature, uh, it cooked a lot quicker. Why? Because broccoli is broccoli stems are really thick and dense, right? So they hold onto their cold for a long time, which means it takes a long time for the heat to penetrate in. And thus your tiny little florets up on the very top are going to be overcooked and mushy by the time this gets cooked through. Part of that is to cut those pieces so that the heat can penetrate evenly. But also part of that is just think about the temperature. And I'm not advocating necessarily that you, you bring your vegetables to room temperature before steaming them, but just be aware of that, though, that if you're going to take ice-cold broccoli straight out, of the, straight out of the refrigerator, put it in the steamer, you're going to drop the temperature of that steamer a lot. You're going to cause it to, it's going to take a lot more energy and time for that heat to return to the level that you wanted it at. So just thinking about the variables there. Um, but also, you're going to get a good sense the more and more you steam vegetables. I know when vegetables are done by smell. That's, that is my universal. I, I am also, I'm also crazy. Like my, my nose uh, can, can just go off at times. Like I can smell when my neighbor two houses down turns their TV on. It, it's, yeah. Like I, I go wacko with smells every now and then. Um, I can't say it's really pleasant, but. Um, it, it is informative, but just paying attention to your surroundings while you're cooking uh, is one of the, the key real components to becoming a really good intuitive cook. That if I've got a steak on the grill and I've got something working over here and I've got rice back there and something in the oven, basically, let's say Thanksgiving dinner, right? Okay, you've got 13 different things going. I don't have eyes on 13 different things, but you know what? The smell of broccoli goes from raw and sort of angular 
and somewhat acidic to being sweet and sort of muddled. And it happens very quickly and it happens very noticeably when it does. And if you're just paying attention and receptive, if you're receiving the messages that the food is giving to you, guess what? I, I'm not being hokey about this, but you're communicating with the food and kind of hearing what it has to tell you, right? Uh, again, like I'm not trying to be a hippie hokey dokey pocus about this, but like broccoli smells different when it's cooked. How cool is that? Thanks, broccoli. That's really helpful. Cool. So practice consistency of pot, consistency of product, consistency of size, and then really just being present and await, await the cues. There you go. Thanks, Or Appreciate it. Right, another question. What is the best way to prepare ingredients for lentil soup? Um, well, that's up to you, bud. Uh, just about anything goes with lentils. So depending on if you're cooking it with stock, uh, I used to make a, a really great dish with lentils uh, that I had some... I was smoking salmon in my oven and I had a tray of ice in the ovens. This was in a restaurant, trays of ice in the ovens to keep it cool. I was trying to cold smoke the salmon to flavor it, not to cook it. So the oven was off and I was just using it as a box. And I had all this ice that ended up tasting deliciously like smoke. So I used that smoked water uh, as a stock for a vegan lentil dish. Uh, and I cooked it with a little bit of cranberry juice in it. Uh, cranberries and lentils are really, really good together. Just the acidity and the soaring sort of acidity, high note of cranberry go really well with the earthen flavors of lentils uh, as a counterpoint to it. So I would cook them with a little bit of smoked water and some cranberry juice. And that was really fantastic. That was more of like a side dish of lentils. Um, but lentils also need some sweetness to them. So I recommend starting off with some onions, getting them a little bit caramelized, getting, drawing out some of that sweetness. Uh, and then carrots as well. Carrots add an incredible amount of sweetness to whatever they're cooked with. Um, and you can leave, the, you can just chop the carrots up into big chunks if you don't want them in the final soup. I'm sure you can dice them all up into nice, fine, beautiful things, or you could just cut it up into three pieces and fish it out later and eat it because it's delicious. Um, it will still add that same uh, sweetness to it. But really, that's what you're looking for is some sweetness and some acidity to balance out the earthiness and sort of meatiness of the lentils there. Cumin is a really great spice to use. Coriander is a great spice to use. Smoked paprika or just sweet paprika in general is a really great ingredient to use uh, that adds so much complexity and counterpoint to, to the lentils. So there you go. Buy good lentils too. That's another key, much like the black beans at the top of the hour when we were discussing those. Uh, the French green lentils, the Dupuis lentils, black lentils, et cetera, uh, these are all, they have a lot of really great flavor to them. The green lentils I found are, they're not as charismatic. They're certainly worth eating, but just not as charismatic. Uh, and the red lentils, you know, what you turn into dal, which is what I have behind me up over here, uh, you know, those don't hold their texture. Uh, they break down into a mush, which is quite attractive for making hummus and purees and dips and soups, whatever. But there you go. A lot to it. Thanks, Dora. Juliana, when using a convection oven recipe, does the temperature need to be higher than that from a regular oven? Uh, no. No. I would say it cook at the same temperature, if not even a little bit lower. Uh, so convection, what it, what it does is it speeds up the cooking by constantly moving new hot air over the surface of things. And as the hot air moves over the surface of things, it, it penetrates deeper uh, and quicker just simply because the 
the heat is fresh. Like as soon as you put stagnant air on top of a giant turkey, well, the turkey is cold and the air was, let's say, 350 degrees. And then it sits on the turkey a little bit and it begins to cool down. So in fact, you have this gradient of temperatures from the ambient oven temperature, 350, to the actual temperature directly around and on the surface of your turkey, which is quite a bit lower, because that's sort of the boundary zone between cold and hot, right? So of course there's gonna be some transfer and you know battle happening there. Convection oven keeps the ambient temperature the same, but is constantly passing the, the air over so the air doesn't have time to cool down necessarily. And so it's just a lot more efficient way of cooking. And I think you end up cooking less for less time and you end up with fewer hot spots in an oven, say, because the air is circulating all around. So it's just, I think, a better way to cook. That said, moving air is going to withdraw more moisture than settled air is going to in just a regular oven. So plan for that, use maybe a little bit more oil on the outside of your turkey, whatever it is that you're roasting, uh, but just know that it will dehydrate your foods a little bit more so than a regular oven. There you go. Hey, great question. Thanks, Julieta. Uh, from Hazeline. Hazeline, what a wonderful name. Thank you, I've not seen that before. It's nice to have you join us, thanks. I'd like to start using miso in my cooking. Can you suggest how best to use miso? Thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, miso in the cuisines it comes from, Japanese uh, cuisine is not my specialty, but I will tell you that miso is just a really kind of obvious ingredient in the way that, well, it obviously works with everything. Yeah, because it does. So what are the different components of miso? Let's, let's break this down. Salty, right? So you're gonna have a salty component. So let's think about miso as seasoning. All right, so if you're making a pot of lentil soup and at the end you want to season it, you can add salt or you could add miso, which is going to add a whole lot of other complexities and flavors, right? So miso is seasoning. You want to season a vinaigrette. Great, a little bit of miso in there is a great way to do it while, again, adding depth of flavor. You don't want to go overkill with miso and you season everything in your dinner, all four components maybe with miso, just you'd be too ubiquitous but it does add that depth of character and richness to things and seasons. It adds texture is the second component to it. So it, it, it's creamy, right? I mean, it will thicken other things. So if you're trying to make a sauce, if you've, uh, you're, hum you're making hummus and you have a little too much water in there, throw some miso in there to help thicken it up, uh, et cetera. If you want a little bit more body in a soup, same thing. Miso can help fortify that texture. So that's another way to use it. Uh, and that texture component also could be as the binder in, say, a vinaigrette um, to blend the oil and the vinegar together in much the same way you might use mustard to act as your emulsifier. So there's that way with miso. Then there's another one, which is the umami factor. So we have salt, texture, and umami. Umami is the, what is it, the, the, the sixth taste? Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, Umami, fifth taste. I haven't slept much recently. Forgive me. Um, umami is, uh, oh, it, was, it was described to me recently. I, I can't remember. It was a, a brilliant line, but um, umami is that the richness of things. It's, it's the, the depth and charisma of flavor that you get from charring, from searing, from Maillard reaction, the caramelization, 
Uh, it's why we love the flavor of grilled foods. It's why we love soy sauce, Worcestershire sauce, Parmesan cheese, etc. They add way more than just salt, right? Soy sauce adds an incredible amount of flavor. And a lot of that flavor is built on that umaminess of it. So even just small amounts of miso added in to give richness to things uh, and depth of flavor. Say you're roasting some carrots, pull them out of the oven, toss them with a little bit of vinegar and some miso as a glaze per se. You're going to get so much more flavor out of that. Uh, so that's, that's another way to do it. And then uh, see what are the other components of well, I mean, that kind of explains it. So it, you can use it just about any, in any which way. It's, of course, super healthful for us. And um, yeah, so there you go. Cheers. All right, Laura, what's the best seasoning for veggies? Well, how about some miso? How about that? There you go. Thin some out with a little bit of water and just use it as a drizzle or sauce or maybe make a puddle of it on the bottom of your plate with a little bit of vinegar in it and some chopped fresh chives or tarragon. You know, no reason why you can't mix cuisines and influences here and then put some lightly steamed asparagus or broccoli around it. You know, it's a nice little potent, pungent, wonderful dipping sauce that also provides the seasoning for the food. So, um, yeah, seasonings for vegetables, though, I, you know, I tend to go with simply just with salt. Uh, good vegetables should taste like the vegetable and proper cooking techniques. As we were talking about earlier, your question about steaming, uh, proper cooking techniques are purposed with getting the vegetable to the right texture, uh, while maintaining all of that inherent flavor. Right? I mean, there's very few dishes other than like maybe mashed potatoes, which is like kill the potato, drain it of all its flavor and pour it down this, pour it down the sink. And then you have this blank canvas into which you can put your butter. Like that's the purpose of mashed potatoes, right? It's a socially, a socially appropriate and accepted conveyance of fat into your mouth. <coughs> it's like French fries. We eat French fries. No, we don't. We eat ketchup. We just use French fries to do it. <coughs> Excuse me. So anyway, salt and proper cooking technique <coughs> will get you, uh, all the seasoning you need. Ooh. <clears throat> All right, from when? Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. <coughs> uh, as we are on a whole food plant-based diet, I'm not using oil. What suggestions do you have for grilling? I'm taking the Plant Plus class, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled that you're part of the Ruby family, thank you. So with grilling, I actually don't, almost never use oil. Um, a, my, my grill is seasoned well enough over the years. Uh, but also, uh, if your grill is hot enough, you're not really it's not there's not much that's going to stick to it. If you're uh, cooking vegetables, whole vegetables, asparagus, broccoli, etc., there's not a whole lot in those that are that is going to stick. <clears throat> and even vegetables like zucchini, long thin strips of zucchini, there, there's not a lot there that's going to stick. Um, when you start getting into to tofu and seitan and other things like that, yes, uh, you have some danger of sticking, especially when the, uh, the structural integrity is a little bit weaker in the ingredient that you're grilling than asparagus. Like, I mean, if you pick up asparagus, like asparagus isn't going to break, right? If you pick it up from the tip, if you pick it up from back here, if you pick it up in the middle, <clears throat> it's not going to break. <clears throat> I don't recommend picking up a burger from the side right? A veggie burger or a meat burger, whatever it is, right? You, you go under them. So 
because their structural integrity isn't the same as an asparagus. So just consider sort of the, the nature and, and temperament, if you will, and the construction of what you're putting on. And uh, think about the heat on your grill. Really high heat. I have When I grill, I almost always use <clears throat> two heat methods, so indirect grilling, where I have all of my coals on one side. So I have a super hot area here to sear, and then I have an area over here to cook. And one thing that people think of, I, I, th I think make the mistake often on grilling is that it's this really engaged uh, process. Like, no, no, it's not. You don't need to touch the food really at all. Just let it sit. It's the heat that's doing the cooking, not you and definitely not your tongs. And I mean, how many backyard barbecues have you been to where usually the dude is just like, you know, sire over the grill and he's like doing this masculine thing where he's just got to poke everything and turn everything and just like manipulate everything, right? It's like, no, 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 dude, just, just back off. Let the heat do the cooking. You know, if you were sauteing something, would you, would you just hold something above the pan? No, you'd keep it in the pan, right? But we're always lifting our burgers off and flipping them and flipping. So, yeah. Anyway, did I just go on a diatribe? Yes, I did. But part of that is that, okay, if you have two heat areas, <coughs> hot and warm, <clears throat> or less hot, and you're grilling something over here, say your veggie burgers, whatever it is, here's another hint. You don't need to move the food. Why? Watch this. I'm going to pick up the whole grill grate. Oh boy, look what I did. Yep, I just flipped over every single piece of food on the grill simply by moving the grill grate, never touching the food. When you don't touch the food, you're not dealing with sticking. I mean, sticking only happens when you try and remove it, right? So if you're only trying to remove it once or flip it once, you just reduced your window of variables down uh, measurably. And in that way, also that high, high heat sort of caramelizes, crisps, cooks that outside quickly to create that separation. And then you turn it over here and let it heat through, gather all that sexy, sweet, seductive, smoky, rustic flavor of the grill. And then wah, it magically pops off. And there you go. And what were you doing the whole time? Enjoying being outside in your company, maybe having a glass of wine and not stressing about your grill. There you go. Cool. Fun question. Thanks. All right. From Anna M, any recommendations on storing fresh oysters and fillets of fish? Sure. Uh, so fresh oysters uh, should be kept as, as cold as possible. Uh, they should not go through temperature swings either. Um, and what I do is if I have oysters that I'm going to have for more than a day, I will put them in a open container, like a, a little Pyrex dish or something like that. And then I'll put a, a wet paper towel over the top of them. And the wet paper towel doesn't keep them moist so much as it keeps their immediate environment moist. It prevents a little bit of drying out, but it also prevents air from directly blowing over them. Again, potentially drying them out. Uh, oysters should stay alive. If they are truly fresh, you have up to a 25-day shelf life on oysters if they were freshly harvested. Uh, I live in Maine. I, I have oyster farmers literally living on either side of me, and I can see the oyster farms from where I'm sitting uh, pretty much. And so oysters don't make it 25 days in my house, but they could. Uh, so just keeping them covered in a moist towel is the best way to do it. Keeping them cold, so not up at the front of the refrigerator where the temperature swings uh, drastically every time you open and close the door. Uh, for fillets of fish, 
same thing, just keep them cold, uh, keep them dry. Uh, you know, if it comes wrapped in plastic, uh, that can uh, be beneficial to bacterial growth and to spoilage <clears throat> because it's not getting any airflow. It's not allowed to dry out. Drier, the drier the surface is, the less bacteria uh, can, less favorable to bacteria that, that area is. So don't expose them to air, but just keep them dry. Give a little bit of space between it and the wrapping um, or wrap it in paper, something like that. That's not going to uh, prevent that airflow. Uh, keep them very cold in the back of your fridge again. Uh, remember they're there. Uh, there you go. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks for the question. <clears throat> From Gloria, Forks Over Knives recipes often ask for canned tomatoes. How to substitute fresh tomatoes for the recipes? Great question. Um, so canned tomatoes are fresh tomatoes, or were once fresh tomatoes that were packed in a can, oftentimes skinned, removed, uh, and then additional tomato juice, tomato puree is added to the can to fill it up, right? So fresh tomatoes, <clears throat> when you chop them up, are not going to be the same as a canned tomato when you chop it up, just in the way that it integrates into a dish. Uh, and namely because the, the cellular structures of the, of the raw tomato, the fresh tomato, haven't been broken down. It's not sitting in this puree as well. So you're going to get sort of tomato water out of a fresh tomato rather than sort of a unctuous tomato juice. Like if you were to squeeze a tomato juice into a bowl and let it sit for 20 minutes, there's some red sediment at the bottom and there's some clear water on top, right? That's... That's not what canned tomatoes look like. So volume-wise, you'd probably, I'm just guessing here, maybe a third greater volume of fresh tomatoes to canned tomatoes to make up for that reduction in, in volume as the cells uh, change as they're cooked, um, as well as for the additional moisture that will need to be uh, introduced. But otherwise, you know, flavor-wise, uh, canned tomatoes are going to have maybe a little bit more of a mature flavor to them as opposed to fresh, which are going to be bright, vibrant, acidic, flowery, aromatic. Canned tomatoes are going to be deeply acidic. They're going to be a lot more noticeably sweet, maybe. Um, so, but none of this can't be overcome by tweaking other recipes. Uh, I'm sorry, other ingredients in the recipes, um, <clears throat> you know, to account for that additional moisture, etc., or just different, you know, amounts of seasoning at the end. But literally all of that is it was kind of a very complicated way of saying, yeah, just go for it. Maybe just add a little bit more of the fresh tomatoes. There you go. Cheers. Great question, though. And all hail tomato season. Let's get back to that soon. From Brad B. I miss the taste of butter. We're not using oils and butters now. What would you recommend? Well, uh, miso is a really great um, addition. It kind of provides a similar richness, as I was saying just a little bit earlier. Uh, also, somewhat similar mouthfeel. Uh, sort of melted over something at the top, maybe thinned out with a little bit of water. So it's this, you know, thick, unctuous sauce. And it really takes the place of butter in that way. Uh, not flavor to flavor match-wise, but sort of in the, the, the nature of the role it plays in the dish <clears throat> is very complementary to what butter does, sort of bringing things together, if you will. Uh, and not using oils. The other thing is just... Uh, 
No, and a, a lot of my my cooking does involve oil. I use I use a, a lot a lot of olive oil, um, but also fresh herbs. Uh, no, they're not butter. No, they're not fat. They're not oil, but fresh herbs add a counterpoint or a punctuation to dishes that sort of elevates the whole of them, which is kind of what we look to fats and butters to do, right? Is to somehow bring the dish into its more fuller state. Um, and fresh herbs, whether chopped up or used as a little salad on top, provide this very fresh, ebullient, charismatic counterpoint that doesn't replace butter, but makes you not miss the butter because you have something else to focus on, right? And it's, uh, it, I don't think it's you know cheating either the butter or the herbs to say that, but that's what we want are sort of these focal points in flavor in, in every bite that we can look forward to, that we can crave. And um, so there you go, cheers. From Madeline, when buying produce or other ingredients or activities have been extremely difficult throughout COVID and trucker union strike. Any suggestions on subbing ingredients, especially for graded activities? Huh. Um, you know, I think if you come up to a graded activity uh, and you, you do have a difficulty there, just shoot us a note. Uh, just fire off something to the admin and just say, hey, for this specific recipe, what would you recommend? I'm having trouble with this. Uh, certainly, we are not going to hold your grade accountable to the global food system uh, and a trucker strike. Like, no, that's not on you. We get that. We are, of course, going to work with you to find a substitute, something that does work within your budget and within availability in your area. So uh, anytime that problem comes up, just shoot us off a, shoot us off a note. Um, you know, or, or make a thoughtful substitution on your own and, and write about it in, <clears throat> in your comments on the recipe. So there you go. Hope it helps. We're here for you, always. Hazeline, hi again. Does the material a cutting board is made from dull chef's knife more than others? What's the best material for cutting boards? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I, some people have glass cutting boards, and I just I don't get that. Um, a, just from the sound that it makes. Um, hmm, Yeah. But the harder the surface is, the more it's going to dull your knife. Glass is harder than wood. Uh, metal is harder than glass. So you want something that's going to have a little bit of give. I have two kinds of cutting boards. I have these big wood blocks, and I like me a big cutting board. Why? Because when I'm cooking, I am externalizing my brain processes. And that's what mise en place is, right? It's having everything in order before you start. And a big cutting board really helps you do that. If you're working on this tiny little cutting board, and this isn't tiny, I mean, I've, I've seen some people that use cutting boards this big, right? give your brain some space to breathe, right? I mean, allow yourself to push things aside and, and have order to things. Uh, another good way for that is these little glass bowls or little metal bowls like this, the mise en place bowls have several of them. So that's just one recommendation on any kind of cutting board is that it, it be big. Uh, it is the focal point of much of what you're doing in the kitchen, especially in a forks over knives or plant-based where it's really about the ingredients rather than more, you know, the, the cooking necessarily. You're not doing these long manipulation cooks. Um, you're integrating a lot of ingredients. So uh, a big cutting board is kind of the centerpiece of your activity in a kitchen. So think of it that way and invest in it. Uh, Plastic cutting boards like these, these are recycled, made from recycled plastic. They have some texture on them, A, so they don't move around a whole lot. You know, I recommend maybe a wet paper towel underneath just to hold it in place. Um, if you're trying to cut what's in front of you, don't have what's in front of you moving all around, right? Just 
seems pretty obvious. Uh, a little bit of texture on a board I like because it adds a little bit of uh, sort of grit to, to work against. So if you're chopping herbs, et cetera, I just find it's a little easier to kind of keep things organized and together. Um, so I use wood. I have cherry wood just because I, I, love, I love cherry wood. It's beautiful. Um, but oak has some antimicrobial properties to it, um, which beneficial or not, whether and honestly, it depends on your color scheme in your kitchen or what you want to look at. Um, but that's what I've got. And wood, I think, is, is best for, for knives. Um, you know, the best thing would be for a knife to never have to touch something if you could just sort of slice everything up in the air, right? And there was never any hard material it banged up against. But if you're going to go with something, go with wood is best for the knife. Keep your knife sharp. Um, there you go. Cheers, Hazeline. Appreciate you. Is it safe to use a cork cutting board from Bev? Uh, I would probably say no. Um, just because cork is f fairly porous. Um, and so you can end up with just a lot of off flavors in your cutting board is, is what I'm thinking. Uh, that the oils like from chopping garlic would soak in, etc. <clears throat> and just kind of be a little bit of a miasma for every fruit salad you ever make for the rest of your life on that cutting board. Um, I would say no for that reason alone. Uh, also from just a food safety standpoint, um, your bacterial growth, uh, et cetera. So hardwood boards, I think probably best. There you go. Interesting question though. Awesome. From Bernadette, do you think, what do you think of a countertop steam oven? Well, I, I think so well of it that I have one. Um, I probably would have put this underneath when I was redesigning this kitchen and, and built this eight years ago. Um, <clears throat> I went with this stove. I probably wouldn't today. I, I would probably go induction just from an environmental standpoint, uh, as well as an indoor air quality standpoint, uh, as well as a, a, a cost standpoint. I would probably go induction stovetop. And then I would get an under counter steam function oven. Uh, since I can't afford to renovate the whole kitchen, um, you know, $500 oven has largely replaced this one completely. I can cook a whole turkey in it. Uh, I get the steam function out of it. It's got Bluetooth accessibility. So I can, like yesterday, I started roasting a chicken when I was still out on the road. I, I put it in at lunchtime when I was here and I had to go out to a meeting and at three o'clock, I, I started it off my phone and I felt a little like I was cheating, but, uh, but it was delicious and it worked. So, hey, um, so there's certainly some great, capacities about this. And the steam function is revolutionary, uh, not only in the quickness and evenness that it can cook things at, but just, I mean, a roasted chicken in the steam oven is, is a miracle. It's amazing. It's incredibly consistently cooked and perfectly juicy throughout. Um, so yeah, I, I actually, I probably would not buy another oven unless it had a steam function, a convection steam function. This one even has a sous vide function on it. So I can cook at um, hundred percent humidity, um, at very low, very consistent temperatures. Um, so yeah, pretty good oven. That's an, and, and then, uh, that is an ANOVA oven, A-N-O-V-A. -A. Check it out. 500 bucks, but worth, I would say worth it. Um, if you're, if you were going to invest just as a, as a toy to have, no, that's a lot of money, but, uh, as a workhorse oven, absolutely. Cheers. Great question from Maureen G. Hi, friend. Uh, no, quite, no question. Just want to tell you how much I appreciate your presentation, humor, and skills. Well, thank you so much, Maureen. That, that means the world to me. 
really. These are just, yeah, thanks. All right, uh, from Sharon. Hey there, I get overwhelmed by how many veggies and fruits there are to eat, but I only know one or two ways to prepare the veggies that I eat. Where should I, where to get the variety? Hmm. Um, two books by an author uh, and a woman who I incredibly admire. Uh, her name is Deborah Madison. She was actually my guest on one of these, uh, one of these events. She joined us from her home in New Mexico. Um, she is the, the author of Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, uh, the classic text and tome, which still remains uh, very, very relevant and useful. And you can see, like I've, I use mine quite a bit, uh, just for ideas and pairings and different techniques to kind of apply. And then uh, one of her more recent books, Vegetable Literacy, uh, talks about things in families. So you begin to understand how to look at diversity uh, and relate it to things that you know. Um, and in that way, like to me, that's the most important thing. It's not knowing the recipe, it's knowing why the recipe works and how the ingredients in that recipe interact and react to not only the other ingredients, but also to the cooking method, right? Vegetable literacy is, is dead on for that. Uh, it is a text, it is a tome, it is brilliant. Uh, also has really great recipes in it that you probably go back to. So. Those two from a friend, Deborah Madison, Vegetable Literacy and Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. There you go. And from Julietta, last one, smell is also my unrequested superpower. Uh, are there any other foods that you detect as done from smell? Uh, just about everything. Um, once you begin to really pay attention, it, I think if you open your mind to the idea that vegetable, like food goes through radical changes, uh, during the cooking process and those radical changes are very often precedented by shifts in aromas, in sounds, in sight, of course. Um, like if I'm cooking steaks, I don't cook steaks very often. I, this, I, we don't eat a lot of red meat at all. But you know what? I've cooked, I don't know, 100,000, 200,000 steaks in my culinary career in restaurants. Um, yeah. I know how to cook a steak. I cook a steak with my ears now. I listen to it. I just, I, I know the sizzle. I know the sounds. I know if I'm sauteing and I know the difference between steak that's still exuding liquid because I can hear it in the sizzle versus a steak that's kind of charred and caramelized and sort of you know, taken back up into itself, et cetera. Just the sounds change. Uh, and, and yes, it takes like the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point or the, uh, the 10,000 hours to become a true expert in something like, yes, it, it takes a lot of just time. It takes a lot of presence focus, um, you know, but it's absolutely worth it. So I mean, brown rice for one is a, it's, it's, it's like, it has the biggest tell of any food that I know in terms of going from not ready to ready, uh, in the way that the starchiness turns into a nuttiness and it happens like that. And it's just cool. Well, that's done. So, uh, you know, again, I don't mean to be so hokey about it or, or hippy dippy about it, but just, yeah, if, if you open your senses, um, and though, as you say, you, your superpower, super sniffer, like I do, uh, 
you know, sometimes you can just be overwhelmed with the senses or oftentimes we just kind of, we're not present in our lives in, in so many ways, but just being calm, being connected, collected, being in your place and present with what you're doing. Uh, it is r remarkable how much food talks back to us. And, uh, yeah, I find that one of the most wonderful things about it. So, and it, it utterly, utterly befuddles my wife when I'm literally upstairs in another part of our house and I'll yell down, broccoli's done. She's just like, how the, you know that. And anyway, there you go. But you know what? Cooking is, is worth doing. It's worth getting all the practice in, right? Because the results are delicious and the result is love and kindness, communion and togetherness when we all come around the table, as I know is important to you. So thanks for joining us in the Ruby family. Thanks for joining me in this event. Come back and join me, I think, in about two weeks when I will be hosting my next event all on onions, as was requested. I do a lot of single topic events like this where we do deep dives into an ingredient category and onions is coming up and I'm really looking forward to that one. Thanks for the suggestions from all of you out there. I wish you all the very best. Bon appetit. See ya.